Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 25 of the Print Design Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Hopkins. Thanks so much for hanging out here for a little bit. Today on the show, we've got Tim Bellinex. He is the design director at Pinterest currently. He also recently participated as a judge in uh, the recent Mohawk show. Um, Tim has been around tech companies doing design and a lot of design in that analog realm, not just online for years. He's been with Facebook and part of their analog lab. He was with Airbnb for a while as well. He's been in the game and he's produced some cool things. So during this episode, we talked about a whole bunch of different projects. Like it's loaded. This was not a single deep dive. There's five or six different projects here that we talk about. And we got so into chatting print that even after we were done, Tim thought of two more awesome print projects that he had created that he then sent me audio for and some pictures for because he really wanted to share those as well. So there is a lot of print talk in this episode, a lot of design talk, things with stories and emotion behind them that turned into tangible items, talk about magazines that he's been a part of, talk about a risograph poster that he was a part of and what the what the purpose behind creating that was. We talk about the first project that he was a part of at Facebook and it was a little red book. I'll leave that uh, I'll leave that there. He'll tell us a little bit more about that later. But um, this episode is just jam-packed with awesome print talk, and Tim is just a wide-open book willing to share this stuff, and you can definitely hear in his voice that he is passionate about creating these experiences, these, these prints, these tangible experiences for people with so much meaning behind them. So I'm going to stop talking now, and let's hit the music and get right into this episode. Let's go! Welcome to the Print Design Podcast, the show where we talk about all things print and packaging. We go behind the scenes with designers and talk about the print projects they designed that really rocked their world. From file prep to holding the finished product in their hand and all the key decisions in between. So let's talk ink on paper. Tim, welcome to the Print Design Podcast. How are you, sir? Doing great, Dave. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, it's my pleasure. Believe me. Um, so first, right away, I'm going to kick this over into your category, and I'd like you to tell the listeners about yourself. Sure. Uh, my name is Tim Bolonix. Uh, I'm a design director at Pinterest. Um, I have been a designer in the Bay Area since about 2004, working in branding. So everything from websites to uh, campaigns to books and prints, probably one of the reasons I'm in here. Um, <laughs> and I am uh, no stranger to print. I've got a small little artist studio over here in Emeryville. Um, and one of my previous gigs was at the Analog uh, Research Lab at Facebook, which was essentially an internal print and art studio. Yep. Um, and so I've been around it. And if, uh, if you could see what I'm surrounded by, I've got a big um, poster wall in front of me of a bunch of Rizos and then another just sort of pin board full of ephemera. So I'm deep in it. 
Awesome. Man, that's such a cool thing to hear. So you came, you were talking about the Facebook Analog Lab. Now, I didn't even know that existed until like six months ago. I interviewed a guest on the Quickie podcast. Um, and I'm not going to be able to pull their name out of a hat, but I know exactly who it is and I can picture their face. Um, they told me about, I think it was Nathan, Nathan Royce. Maybe that's it. I think, that, I think that's it. Anyways, they um, they were telling me about this analog lab and that it's like a, basically an in-house print shop, which is completely contradictory of what you think you would find at a tech firm like that. Yeah. Shall I tell you more? <laughs> yeah, please. Yeah. So I want to hear a little bit about that, but also if there's anything like that at Pinterest where you're at now. Yeah, absolutely. So... I mean, when I, one, I never thought I would sort of work in-house when I sort of got out of school. At the time, there were very few companies that I felt like had a a value within design or really sort of made it a part of their core. And um, while I was at uh, CalArts, which has a a great poster community there uh, doing a lot of silkscreen work uh, internally, um, I was freelancing at Facebook over the summer and sort of saw that the kind of energy and vibe that was going on there around sort of artwork and posters was like very similar to school. And so mm-hmm. um, that was my next stop. Um, and the analog research lab was started by uh, Everett Katigback and Ben Berry, two buddies of mine. Um, they were the first to sort of get things up and running along with like a few folks in facilities uh, that helped them sort of find a space in a, in a part of a, a warehouse. And those two guys have print backgrounds and they started uh, a little sort of print studio on the side because of um, a hackathon, which is essentially something that happens a lot in tech companies where you get like a day or, or a few to just like work on passion projects. And these guys being, you know, in the uh, in the print world, in the graphic design world, decide to sort of do something like that. And that's cool. Um, a few months after they had sort of gotten something sort of up and running is when I sort of showed up and was like, this is amazing. Um, it felt <laughs> just like being in school and had similar questions that you know you've voiced and just about anyone else I've talked to about it is like this seems very uh, odd and I think what it really represents is I think the ability to sort of shape your space in these kinds of companies um, especially and I think tech companies with their growing value in design they really want to listen to designers and sort of make space for the things that they need and uh, and that's sort of what happened and how that how that space grew and sort of became, it sort of snowballed over and over from just print work to uh, art installations. And I'm actually speaking to you on the day that they've actually rebranded the the whole operation. So it's it's no longer the Analog Research Lab. It's, uh, I believe it's uh, Facebook Open Arts. Uh, and so, because that program has just been growing more into sort of the art space, um, it's, it's a really amazing thing that I don't think a lot of people know so much about and don't really align um, you know, that social media company with, uh, with artwork. And I think they're, they're trying to change that. So, um, and then your question around Pinterest, like, does Pinterest have something like this? Um, we do have a, a sort of a maker space, but I'm speaking to you in the middle of a pandemic and we're obviously not in, <laughs> yeah. in an office. And, uh, I think that there's like different flavors of it. Um, so before Pinterest, I was off also at Airbnb and I helped yep. uh, co-found common studio there, uh, with some friends. And that was also sort of their version of just getting your hands dirty and making things. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a uh, screen printing in there. We also had sort of book binding and, and leather making kinds of work. And it was really a way of 
energizing the people that are working there to sort of make things and think through making uh, rather than, you know, thinking mostly sort of digitally or, or on the computer. I think there's something really special if you talk to any sort of designer that works with their hands or especially sign painters, um, any sort of craftsperson, when you're, when you're working with your hands, there's, there's definitely something uh, different, something special to the tangibility of things. And I think a lot of people just resonate and feel that when they come into these kinds of spaces. A hundred percent. I could not agree more. Going from something, you know, where you're scrolling through your phone, everybody's used to doing that. And you come across, you know, there's, you see good design on there, but you can't, you can't interact with it in a way that is something tangible, a print piece is something that you're meant to interact with in your hands. So it just takes that design experience with whatever it is to a whole nother level um, from like the recognition, the memory, the experience, like just to a whole nother level. Do you, you know, think that that's important in this increasingly tech mobile world? Is it becoming more and more important for having those tactile interactions? I think the optimist in me wants to say yes, but I think the realist in me says it is more of a balancing act. I think that, you know, especially with a lot of people just working from home or being in quarantine now, I think, I think mail, I mean, we've seen this in the US at least uh, around just general politics, but also just a general love for the USPS and getting things in the mail. And I think that that's tangibility and reception of something physical takes on a new meaning, whether or not it's having some sort of huge resurgence. I can't necessarily uh, say that I'm seeing that because I think that there's a flip side to all of this, that there's, you know, we're in an economic downturn, a lot of people also hurting. So there's, there's two sides to all of this. Um, I will say that one of the special things that I think still holds up with print is that it can make an idea feel tangible right away. Yes. Um, whereas in, you know, you might just have something in your head and even if you just sort of jot it down on a note, those are, those are baby steps to, I think when you actually have printed something, it feels somehow more like it's living in the world. Um, and I've got prints in front of me that were editions of one or editions of thousands, and they st- still hold a, a special weight to them that I think is one of the things mm-hmm. that still makes print uh, pretty special. It naturally has this exclusivity built into it because it's this tangible thing that only so many of these were made and you have one. You know, it's, it's less exciting when you get fast food flyers, but <laughs> more exciting when you take that to a whole other level, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely something about the, um, you know, the the quality of the print as well. So if you think about a fast food flyer, you know, that compared to or or even just the message, how the message in the medium can can really match up and yeah. elevate something. Yeah. Man, I've said this and and tell me if you agree with me here, Tim, but there's scented coatings out there that you can get that there's hundreds and hundreds of sort of stocked scents from mint to cedar to there's even cannabis scented coatings now for print. Um, There's a bacon scent. There's a beef scent, which kind of has this like barbecued hamburger kind of smell to it. It's bizarre when you smell it. But imagine a fast food flyer arriving in your mailbox and it smelled like cooking burgers that's is that elevating the experience or what is that doing to it i mean i think all of the scents that you're you're noting right are mostly around food and so i think that there's i would be surprised if it happened outside of the context of where food is so maybe getting something in the mail that was burger scented or fry scented might actually be a little bit odd but as a compliment 
to, you know, fry packaging per se, or some other kind of food packaging, maybe it's on a shelf and it gives you a sense of like something that's fresher. Um, I could see that being useful. I mean, yeah, we haven't even talked about like the power of scent within print. Um, Many of my friends that have seen me receive a new book in the mail or go into a bookshop, one of the first things I do, unfortunately, is I smell Smell the book. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) I used to think I was strange because, and my, my wife still thinks it's strange, but when I look at, or we get mail, depending on what it is, I don't smell everything, but I'll smell some of the mail or a little book or a brochure or, you know, a, a, a multiple multi-page flyer that arrives around Christmas time or something. I'll sort of open it and you, and you smell it, right? It's, it's part of that interaction and experience. Yeah, absolutely. Did you, uh, I'm sure you know about like the Steidl, uh cologne that's no. uh, Steidl, the printer. Oh yeah. Uh, I, I believe he's in, uh, he might be in Germany, a uh, great art book printer. I believe at one point he made a, a perfume or a cologne that was based off of printing. No way. Yeah. <laughs> I've always thought about doing a print shop, like scented candle. Mm-hmm. You can bring it in your house and it just smells like you walked into a print shop. Mm. That's super cool. Okay. I'm going to look that up. Yeah. Um, Tim, what is your earliest memory of printer packaging? Something from your childhood, your teens? Um, what do you remember? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in uh, suburban California. And I yep. think when I, when I look back at what the influences were around me, they were uh, baseball cards and cereal packaging. Um, I, I did my undergraduate uh, degree project on cereal. And sort of its surreal uh, design nature. If you ever look at a at cereal packaging close enough, there are things that defy physics and uh, lots of other sort of photographic tricks on there. But uh, those those two things, I think, were a pretty big influence on me. Um, and I think it's a, it's a little bit outside of print, but I would say graffiti was also sort of a, the mm-hmm. next step. And that was a little bit more in my teenage years when I started to be able to sort of travel outside of my little suburb. And that's when I sort of realized that like, oh, you make letters. Um, and so then all those things sort of start to tie together. Then I look back at, you know, I, I still love cereal and still eat cereal today. And so I continue to look back at those things and really notice uh, how all of that sort of comes together and creates uh, interesting communications. Definitely. And I, I listened to a podcast about cereal boxes and the packaging and how from original development through the stages where there were some very questionable marketing tactics into sort of more recent days um, of what they're doing. But um, were you a were you a tricks guy, alphabets, frosted flakes? Where did you land, Tim? Where did I land? I think I was a... Uh... Definitely went through plenty of different phases. Uh, Cinnamon Toast Crunch held up for a pretty a pretty long time, and then like Cocoa Pebbles. Oh uh, yeah, the, like the Flintstone ones, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that was. Um, it's actually one of the most common things that I hear when I ask this question is is cereal packaging from the cereal aisle. Well, you know, like they actually had some pretty interesting print techniques because it it really is. Those those boxes, the designs of them change over so much because it is marketing. And yep. I definitely remember buying cereal or asking or pleading with my parents to buy cereal that had like Ghostbusters, you know, hologram cards or something in there. Oh, you know? yeah, and so yeah, you yeah. get into like these crazy, you know, uh, 3D printing or lenticular printing. And I probably didn't even, you know, realize it at the time, but, um, but yeah, it, like, like that, that is probably some of the more experimental, like print work that you might find in a grocery store, I bet. 
Mm-hmm. No, I couldn't agree more. Um, what about recently, Tim? Any recent printer packaging experiences or things that you came across that really stood out to you? I mean, there's been a few things without giving too much away. So I'm, I'm lucky to be a judge in the, uh, the Mohawk show. Yep. And so I've been, uh, had a few boxes here of, of submissions for that. And, you know, that was really inspiring to see still a, a strong love of print. And I think what I noticed was a little bit more uh, inventiveness in like a lo-fi way. So I, I'm a big fan of sort of stretching your dollar and doing something uh, that catches your eye, but uh, on the cheap per se, mm-hmm. because it's mm-hmm. you know uh, not always playing with big budgets in my world. And yeah, that's for sure. And and often it, it ends up it ends up showing through in the concept more as well. Like you can't really hide behind something that's too fancy. And so I've really enjoyed seeing just more people embracing. Um, you know, different colored paper stocks, um, different ways of folding, lots of different spiral binding going on. That's a lot of fun. Um, I am a huge proponent and fan of a risograph. And so anytime that work comes through, which I feel like has been having a resurgence for a little while, yep. um, that will always catch my eye. Um, and I, I love playing with those. I've uh, definitely had my fair share of uh, influence with that. So. Definitely. So what I always find interesting is in the print space, you know, there's all these different types of printing. There's letterpress and and screen print and Rizzo and offset. And, you know, Rizzo, you know, like you said, is having this resurgence right now. Letterpress went through that phase. Screen print is sort of arguably still in that phase. And those ones are all like the sexy print terms. Those are real nice. But then when you start talking like offset printing or lithography, it doesn't have like the sex appeal to it. Like, why is that? when the majority of things are offset printed? I think that's a, a really good question. And I would say it depends on the time frame that you're asking and who you're talking to. So I would say that a risograph right now might seem, you know, sexy uh, to quote you in that moment. But back in the day, it was, you know, used for like schools and churches and was seen as, you know, a duplicator. <laughs> so it was, true. You know, and so it's, it's more about the framing of it. I think that you know, some of it probably has to do with ubiquity, right? So offset printing is everywhere and it's probably the majority of print that people interact with. And so therefore they're going to take it for granted or people just aren't really experimenting in that medium enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're, you're not sort of getting wowed by it and we're, we just sort of get tired with it. Um, with lithography or other, other print mediums, there's the cost and setup of them that can just be prohibitive to a lot of people doing it. And I think that uh, that's a thing that sort of can be a big drawback. Uh, your point about screen printing, I'd say that sort of waxes and wanes a little bit because it takes a good amount of resources, you know, both space-wise and just uh, consumables-wise. And then there's a whole chemistry set up to it that's you know, is a whole uh, can of worms as well. I've had plenty of people say, oh, I'm going to, you know, screen print and just going to wash things out in my shower. And I'm like, okay. Like, like, good luck with that. And, yeah. and so I, I think it's a little bit about just sort of the timing and what's in the zeitgeist or the community as well as, um, you know, access that, that I think can really uh, play into these things as well as what people do with it. Like, you know, all of, all of these things that we've talked about can still be really interesting, um, you know, in the right hands and with the right um, content, I'd say. Uh, yep. I like your perspective on that. 
Um, Tim, what was the very first print project that you were ever a part of? The first one that you ever produced? This is a very humbling example. The first thing that was <laughs> printed. Uh, so when I came out of school, I was very lucky to have the Chronicle Books Fellowship here in San Francisco. They run uh, a, one of the best, in my opinion, uh, internship fellowship programs. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's a few months long. And so I was doing that. And within the first week, um, I designed a cocktail napkin for a fundraiser. Uh, nice. I believe it was called Books and Booze. And it was printed at uh, the San Francisco Center for the Book, which I've uh, now, you know, years later became a board member at and really love and uh, uh, support all the time. Um, but yeah, it was a, a, a cocktail napkin, letter pressed, one color, nothing fancy, but uh, yeah, it was fun. Do you still have one of those napkins, Tim? I definitely do. I think one of the downsides, <laughs> one yes. of the downsides of being someone that enjoys print is you tend to hang on to it for probably too long. And then I have a few boxes in storage that are just like one or two samples of things I've made. So I bet I couldn't find it right away, but I, I would not be surprised if I still have it. <laughs> That's perfect. Perfect. Now in this world of print, <clears throat> there's, there's lessons to be learned. And sometimes the only way to learn them is the hard way. So with that said, I want to ask you, Tim, if you've been a part of a print project that did not turn out as you had hoped, it didn't go well, went sideways, whatever that is. Can you tell us about that story, your experience with it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think this is a, it's, it's fairly recent. Uh, in 2019, uh, I helped launch uh, a magazine called Double Issue. Okay. And uh, I knew going into it, I'd, I'd worked on a variety of different books before. I sort of understood what went into something, but never had I sort of worked on a project from the grassroots all the way up to sort of almost like kickstarting something and, and putting it out in the world. Um, and so we had a lot of high hopes, and I think we delivered a really interesting piece. Uh, the, the magazine, for those that don't know, um, is about following a social issue through time. Uh, so that you could understand and see what people did around that topic. So you could take, um, you know, women's rights as an example and say, mm-hmm. okay, this is what people were talking about back in the 1900s. Here's what they were talking about in the 1950s. And here's what we're talking about today. Like, do you see how this conversation has changed? Do you see the things that we have progressed on? And do you see the things that we're still fighting for? Um, Interesting. Yeah, it really like a, you know, quasi political, social engagement sort of piece um, and was really excited about all of the possibilities, but uh, was met with, you know, it's really tough to launch a magazine, Um, even though there's definitely been a resurgence of a lot of indie magazines. you know, I, I think we had some fairly high hopes for like the kinds of paper. I had sort of been working really closely with a great printer uh, up around your neck of the woods, actually, uh, up in Vancouver. And, you know, due to costs, unfortunately, couldn't go through with them. So it was sort of bit by bit sort of chipping away at the um, at some some of the high hopes to it. Now, you know, the, the project still launched. It actually didn't even need to go through a Kickstarter. We were able to uh, sort of privately fund it and get it out the door and then then work with uh, magazine distribution and sales to sort of make it happen. But uh, to your point, sometimes, you know, there's there's a difference between, uh, you know, the, the act of making and the philosophy around making something. And so um, it was a really good reminder of all of the, the back end that needs to go into a project, especially around print, Um, to really make it happen. You know, the writers, the editors, the photographers, 
Um, and then of course the making sure the demand is there for the kind of uh, work that you're producing in the world. So, mm-hmm. so about the, just diving a little bit deeper into that, did you have a vision for, you know, the paper selection is one of the things that you mentioned, like, did that come true? Did you, or did you have to make sacrifices there that you just didn't quite agree with? Yeah, I mean, there's always there's always going to be sacrifices in any project. And we definitely had, um, I mentioned sort of wanting a certain printer and not being able to afford them, and like later on down the line with yeah. that, there were certain paper choices that we knew would sort of hold up uh, with ink a little bit better. So you wouldn't mm-hmm. get rub off, uh, you know, when you when you close the magazine. Um, we, we did a, an interesting short cover to it. So the cover actually has a a shortened cover so that it shares the cover image with the first image uh, within the magazine. And that was one of those like economical, um, plays that actually, you know, was, was baked into the concept because it's, Mm -hmm. it's called double issue. It has two images that sort of overlap and mirror or, or sort of match up to sort of hopefully create some sort of conversation in the viewer's mind and that was the one component that uh print wise that i held on to and was very happy to see through (laughs) because so many other things sort of got sort of cut out uh you know there's always the hope for like spot colors for common colors that we're using throughout um but you know those things sort of start to sort of winnow away and uh yeah but you got your split cover, your short yeah. cover. Yeah, I got my short cover. And, <laughs> you know, the printing was still was still pretty good, but you know, all all lessons learned and all you know within uh, within really good company. I think one of the the sayings I love to repeat is that the reward is in the process, and so yeah. uh, it definitely felt like uh, a, a great piece to be a part of. I like that the reward is in the process. Perfect. So Tim, now's the time for a deep dive. I want to talk about one specific project that you've been a part of, and I want to do a deep dive on that as much detail as we can get into Um, paper selection, color selection, how that was done, uh, budgets, how many of this piece were produced, um, specialty finishing, all that kind of stuff. So what, um, what'd you pick? And I'm now realizing that I mixed my two examples up when I told you before this. <laughs> That's fine. So uh, the the piece I want to talk about is uh, is actually a fairly humble piece. It's a it's a risograph poster, um, and this was a project from uh, I believe it was 2018. Uh, and so this was when I was teaching at California College of the Arts. Uh, uh, otherwise known as CCAC or CCA, excuse me, uh, here in San Francisco. And Rachel Berger, the head of the undergrad department, uh, started a little project that would get the the teachers and the students to sort of work together a little bit more, sort of like one-on-one uh, okay. in almost like a mentorship uh, capacity, but in a way to produce a project together. Got and it. so the project that she came up with was called PPP, known as uh, Posters, Problems, and People. And so she would match up uh, two people that wanted that volunteered to be a part of this project and give them uh, a topic at random. And it was up to those uh, people to generate a risograph poster uh, together at the end of the semester. I had been a part of helping uh, Rachel um, acquire a riso for the for the department. And, you know, uh, if you know anything about sort of work within schools. If you don't lose, if you don't use resources, you end up losing them. So yes. um, you got to make some projects around it. And so um, <clears throat> I was teamed up with uh, Jane Chen, uh, a student uh, that I had actually not worked with. I hadn't had her in any of my classes. And our topic was around uh, sexism okay. and women's rights. 
And so through a variety of different, um, just sort of one-on-one workshops together and reading through a variety of different books, um, I believe Michael Beirut did the intro to uh, a protest posters green, I think it's like green, green protest posters. uh, um, And one of his bits of advice in there was to, you know, keep things really simple when you're creating sort of uh, work around social justice to to get to the point. and so we worked with the the limits of the project. Uh, Resographs only have so many colors, which is one of the beauties. And mm-hmm. we were uh, asked to keep it to just two. Um, and so we went with a lovely fluorescent pink and federal blue, um, sort of one of the more fancier colors known, and then one of the more standard Rezo colors known. Um, federal blue. Yeah, I believe it's, it's either federal or medium blue. Maybe I'm wrong on that. It's probably federal. Medium. Sounds better. Federal sounds better. <laughs> sounds more authoritative. Um, yes, as if as if the government sort of mandated that you must use this blue. Um, <laughs> so it was a combo of those colors um, and um, sort of brainstorming around our messaging for this um, that came together. And uh, it's it's really a, a three. I guess yeah, it's it's a three. Uh, it's a three setup phrase that says "Hear women, believe women, alert women," and it's all overprinted. That's printed in blue on top of neon uh, pink lettering that says "Now." This is now, 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 now. Um, I was pretty happy with the project for one, just sort of how humble it was, but two, uh, you know, the process again, like working with a student that I hadn't worked with before. It can be, uh, you know. Group projects can always be tough, whether it's you know five people or <laughs> yes, two people. Can. <laughs> and and I think one of the one of the the things that I, I love about the project is that I ended up seeing it around town. So we had a, a really short print run that was basically only available to sort of people that sort of walked through the school. Um, but then uh, I started to see it around, and uh, I decided to do a second print run and asked a local shop called Rare Device if they wanted to pick it up. Uh, and they said, yeah, sure. And um, so a, a large proceeds of the sales of the prints uh, in the shop go to a nonprofit that just helps. It's, uh, it's, it's not one party or another, and it just helps women run for office. Um, and I was like, this is a nice sort of tie together with what the actual message is. And yes. the posters continue to sell out. Um, and so I would continue to do like a few more Rezo runs at school. Um, sometimes tossing in some different paper, you know, I'd, I'd experiment on some, uh, uh, on some colored paper from Mohawk, some key color, um, and some other, other stuff I had lying around and just sort of create some fun, you know, that's always one of the fun things with the Rezo is you can toss in any new paper into your design and all of a sudden it, it makes a whole new design. Um, totally. so, so, continue to- so I just want to pause on that paper there for yeah. a section. Um, so the initial run of these things that you guys did for the project itself, for the, the, the class project itself, mm-hmm. um, what did you select? What did you go with? What did anything special sort of lead to that decision or was it just, um, let's get a white paper. So these colors pop or something. Yeah. I, I think, um, unfortunately I, I think to, to marry the whole project together because we were one pairing amongst a bunch of others. Yeah. And so I, I think we just went with a, a standard white. It was probably like a spring Hill. Uh, there's a, 
a paper company here, Kelly Paper, that um, a lot of folks use as sort of like a standard bond paper that they have that just sort of feeds smoothly in a Rizzo and yeah. doesn't smudge too much. Um, you know, you can pay a little bit more and get something with a bit more grain. Um, you know, definitely going for like a French or a mock and you'll get some really good ink saturation and sink in there. But um, when you need, you know, a few hundred sheets and you don't want to break the bank, you sort of go in the other direction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Okay. So this was a fairly recent one that you guys produced and it ended up being so well received that it became this fundraiser piece that you ended up producing more and more of. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, and it also got uh, picked up for um, a show at the uh, Richmond Art Center uh, over here in the East Bay, which was just something that uh, I think Rachel might have submitted a few posters to it. And so it just has been something that's been really humble and something that was just fun to make, you know, at CCA um, that has sort of grown a little life of its own. And I think it's a just a good lesson that you never really know where things will go. Um, and so just remaining, I think, a little bit more humble with our ambitions sometimes, uh, you can be pleasantly surprised. Definitely. I love that. That was an awesome story. Thank you so much for bringing that one and sharing that. Um, not only is it print related, it's, you know, got that sexy Rizzo, but it's also, it, it, it has some like, it's a good cause behind it. And that's what I love about that. Um, earlier, you had mentioned that you are... I don't think you used the word hoarder. I think you you might have been. <laughs> but you like to collect things and, and, and the things that um you know have been impactful to you and or you've produced or designed in, in print. Um that's not obviously not the first time that I've heard that from, <laughs> from a designer. Why no? do you think why yeah, why do you think that is? Why do designers love print and packaging and these tangible things and hang on to them? Yeah. I mean, I in thinking about that, I wonder if it's as true with like newer designers today that their first introduction is possibly mostly just digital and, and maybe they're they're not um, they're not as enamored with it, but I think for a certain group of folks, um, there is, you know, it, it can, it can be something as simple as just nostalgia, which I think mm -hmm. anyone could sort of save components of, um, it could be about saving something that, um, had a particular finish that you might want to replicate some other time or, or like a bit of an idea that you're like, oh yeah, I really want to try that thing. Or I want to try that process over there. Uh, with this thing that I saw, you know, a week ago, um, I'm looking at my pin board here and I've got like a cyanotype over here and I've got a postcard that has a uh, foil on it. And now I'm thinking to myself like, Oh, why haven't I done like foil printing on my cyanotypes? Why not? So it's, it's little things like that where you can sort of create these, um, I guess, collisions um, that I think is really fun about sort of collecting things um, that, you know, sort of strike, uh, strike your interest because you're, you're not quite sure. You, you love it for the thing that it is, but then there's often another life or another inspiration that comes out mm -hmm. uh, off the side of it. Yeah, and I, I do hear that even from younger designers, you know, the, the 22 to 25 year olds still too, but primarily with packaging and hanging on to beer labels or shrink sleeves on craft beer that they really appreciated, whether it was some sort of unique texture on it or something different there or a foil and it's something different or just like the raw illustration and design that was used for the piece. Um, but it seems that 
even non-designers appreciate hanging on to things. And the most common example of that is like an iPhone box. How many people still have an iPhone box from a phone that they no longer have? <laughs> and it's, it's that experience with it. Experience with that print and packaging gives and offers that not a lot of other things can. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a connection, not only with there's like a connection between the packaging and the thing inside, right? So I think about, you know, the beer packaging that you bring up. Mm -hmm. and I think beer packaging in general, <clears throat> is definitely going through uh, a bit of a, uh, a rebirth per se with with so many different breweries sort of popping up that are that are very small. But mm -hmm. there, I think in the past few years, I feel like beer labels have just become more and more artistic. They might not even say the beer on it at all and it just becomes a thing uh you know an object to be associated with really which is not that dissimilar from someone that is holding an iphone really it is i, I don't want to say status symbol but there's a certain kind of symbol symbolism to it that is then relayed to the person that has it definitely the thing that you said there about the packaging relating and aligning with the product inside um i've heard that with music and designing you know cover lab um, cover sheets for music and you know cd inserts and things like that having to when you look at the cover artwork you already have a sense or a feeling of what the music is going to be like and i've also heard it with beer where you need to visualize what this beer could taste like just from this label, just from this shrink sleeve and just from this artwork. Yeah. Or, or, or maybe even just like the vibe of it, you know, where mm -hmm. it's more like a personality or a feeling that you'll get from it. Yes. So, you know, I'm not going to illustrate, you know, a bunch of different hops and barley on this. I'm going to, you know, try and express a certain kind of feeling. And I think that's a good overlap with music as well, right? You're, you're trying to get across a tone and a feeling and like, an, and, and in, and in the best case, sort of extend the ethos of, of what a, a, a band or an album might be. Yeah, I don't know why many heavy metal bands that are using bright pinks and 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 light colors in their artwork. <laughs> Again, not quite a brand feel there, right? <laughs> yeah. Perfect. So, Tim, a designer who is either finishing school or they are already out there in the field and they, they don't know enough about print, but they want to get started with print design. They want to start learning about it and experimenting with it. What advice would you give them? Where would you suggest they start with that print design journey? I would say start anywhere. Um, so, you know, we all have different, uh, things at our disposals, different kinds of friends. And I would just say, start anywhere. So if you have, you know, whatever, an Epson printer at home, start experimenting with that, you know, play with your cartridges, really like understand the parameters that you're working within based on the different print medium. Um, you know, you're probably going to have some sort of offset, uh, project in the future, like, you know, go to the press, meet the the people that are working the press, understand that process. Like, mm -hmm. don't wait for an invitation, um, you know, just experiment and begin. Um, because one of the best things about uh, starting off in a field or just starting in general is that um, anywhere you go is progress. And you're really only dictated uh, by your curiosity. And so I would just say, mm -hmm. take advantage of that and really dig into it. And 
um, keep that beginner mindset that you're always learning and uh, continue to question why things are done the way that they are, mm-hmm. because you'll just continue to learn. I think if if you're someone that is fortunate enough to go to design school, I think one of the things that you need to keep up is that sort of sense of curiosity and learning that you've probably been in for the past few years that you've now sort of uh, graduated from. So. I love that. You've just made it so approachable for anybody in any sort of situation to just start experimenting and dabbling in. And you touched on something that I repeat often and actually had somebody take action on um, when I made a social media post the other day in my Instagram stories. I said, you know, if you're a designer wanting to get into print, phone a local print shop and just ask to come in for a tour. You just want to have a look and see what they got going on because not one, you're going to see some cool equipment. Two, you're bound to learn something just by seeing what's going on around and and having somebody walk you through the process. And the other benefit of that is you're likely to walk away with a bunch of cool print samples that they produce that you can further sort of draw these parallels and connections to. And I had somebody do that. And then send me a a direct message over Instagram saying, hey, I took your advice. I'm touring this print shop this day, this print shop the other day. And even after they went, they messaged me and told me what they learned. And that was such a cool thing. That is really great advice. I'm glad they took you up on it. And yeah, it's... If it's if nothing else, yeah, all printers have their sample selection of sort of yeah. recent jobs, and um, you know those are always fun. I actually I really miss going to like our local printers over here. Um, I would go to Oscar Printing, uh, and I would always sort of see like a little bit of what uh, what what the Bay Area was producing when I would sort of pop in and, and see who was doing something interesting. It's uh, yeah, I do miss that. Yeah, who's got what cooking and seeing what's going on in the print shop? Yeah, yeah. Like, how many foils did that person use? Who's that client? What's going on? Yeah, like that. that's cool. Calendars already? Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> that's a classic line. Um, awesome, Tim. This has been amazing nerding out with print for you. I'm so glad we were able to connect and do a deep dive on some of these print projects throughout your career. Um, that's the end of the Print Design Podcast, my friend. Awesome. Thank you for having me, Dave. Yeah, hang on the line just a second. Awesome. Man, Tim, this is so cool. I'm so glad we can connect on here. Yeah, likewise. Uh, Was that deep enough or should I... uh, I'm happy to talk about other things if you want. (laughs) Well, I will... I got at least another half an hour to nerd out about things. So if you want... If you got some other cool things you want to share, I am all ears. Okay, let's see. Um, You got some... uh, Yeah, I knew once I got you going, you'd be... (laughs) Yeah, I just want to make sure that I have... uh, There's one project I did with a buddy of mine. So I want to make sure I have my references correct. Because um, in just thinking about that printer, I was just me- uh, mentioning, um, we ended up doing a book that had 13 um, foils on it. What? Um, where is it? Where is it? Um, one second. Here it is. I'm going to have to sum this up by having you send me some photos and images of all this stuff. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to try and find it because it's not on my buddy's site. Um, yeah. where, do you, where do you post a lot of your work? You know, I'm actually a really bad example of <laughs> sharing one's work online. Like I have, when I left Facebook, I put together um, uh, just a little site um, through through ReadyMag, 
Um, and it was just a collection of a bunch of posters that I had made while I was at the analog research lab. And it was a way to just reflect on what was made because mm -hmm. for our conversation, it's, it's sort of hard to imagine, you know, what goes on there, why it goes on there and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that's probably been the closest thing in a while outside of like PDFs that I put together for either lectures or for, you know, actual, um, actual job interviews. Mm -hmm. Um, it's very, it's, uh, yeah. I'm long overdue for something that is much more robust rather than sprinkling things left and right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. I'm not necessarily going to be able to find it. Um, so maybe we're just at where we're at, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. I'll get there. So does, does Pinterest and um, Airbnb, like these tech companies that you've been around, like are they, are they producing print are they printing stuff yeah absolutely i mean airbnb had um pineapple for a little while their magazine um that wasn't necessarily printed in-house but if you um received the first copy or found a copy of the first one you could tell from the printing and from the paper and having worked with their production team there they really know craft very well yeah. um but they of course like a lot of tech companies have needed to scale things and so that has now become airbnb magazine and it is uh sort of co-run with hearst a really big publisher out here yeah. and it feels like you know a magazine that you might get on the newsstand not necessarily one that you might pick up at like an art bookshop, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I, I think I think they're still sort of in that craft realm a little bit. Um, at Pinterest, we're you know we try and lean into direct mail. Mm -hmm. um, per sort of my earlier examples around um, sort of meeting people where they're at right now, and to get something in the mail can be you know a lot of fun and be really interesting. I mm. worked on a piece um, uh, back in. When did it ship? It shipped in about July okay. and it was wrapping paper for the holidays. Nice. And the whole, the whole point was like people start planning things on Pinterest way ahead in advance, uh, you know, more so in advance than anywhere else. Yeah. And so we wanted to get that in front of advertisers to say, Hey, like your audience is already planning stuff. They're already playing the holidays. You know, here's some, here's some fun wrapping paper that can sort of remind you of that, like, mm -hmm. and make sure you get your ads out. So interesting. So that's, uh, and that was one of the questions I had is, you know, when a company like, I believe Facebook also produced a magazine for, did produce or is producing. I thought it was, it was strictly business focused. Oh, I think you're right about that. I don't know if that was an actual physical thing though. Um, mm. I could be wrong, um, but I think the thing that I saw, it definitely looked physical, but it was a hmm. PDF that you downloaded, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they did actually print something. I hope they actually printed something and not <laughs> te tease me like that. Yeah, I, I, sw I saw a picture of like in somebody's office or something, but but what I, where I was getting at is wondering if, you know, when a company like Facebook or Airbnb or Pinterest is sending out a direct mail, hmm. like, like who... Are, either that's going to millions of users and to your entire user base, but that doesn't yeah. make sense. No. Like who is the database that's receiving that? Yeah. The database is the advertisers. So the people that are paying the money that are putting the ads on the platforms and it's, you know, and of course with a place like Facebook or Instagram, like you have tons of advertisers. So you're only going to send it to, you know, a certain cohort based on what sort of metrics, whether it's small businesses or your top, you know, 100 advertisers that are really going to move the needle the most. 
um, for what you have to do. But in talking about this, I actually thought of another piece that I could talk to you about, which I think cool. you'll really enjoy. I'm just going to grab it because it'll be easier yeah. to talk about. Yeah. So the one that came to mind uh, was one of the first projects I did at Facebook. And it's something that uh, is something that's near to my heart for a variety of different reasons and encapsulates, uh, I, I think, an interesting time that that company went through. And I can sort of see both the positive and the negative, which is a really weird thing to think about when you think about your own projects in, in yeah. retrospect. Um, and so um, what I wanted to talk about is something called the Little Red Book. It was something that we made at Facebook um, around the time of uh, announcing, I believe it was our the first billion users that that came onto the site. And it was meant as a little bit of a, um, a, a nod or a celebration. And it really took on sort of a life of its own. And it became almost like a, a manual per se, because after we had launched it, it was then something, it started as a gift. So when we had, uh, when we were um, going to announce this big uh, milestone at the company, um, uh, there was going to be a moment where, you know, um, Mark would, would speak and then uh, the whole company would come out and see it and they would return to their desks and this little red book would be sitting, would be sitting on it. And really, it's like an encapsulation of the, the company's culture. And I would say at that time, uh, because I think, you know, as any good company, the culture changes because the people changes, because people change, excuse me, and uh, you need to sort of grow and adapt. Um, but this book is... Uh, uh, interesting to me for a few different reasons. One is that we we knew in full context sort of what we were uh, what we were talking about. We're talking about a, a technology company that is uh, has the ability to, to influence uh, culture, okay. and so because of that, I looked back at some of uh, the books. Um, if you're familiar with the medium as a message as a designer, I'm sure, of course you are. If you think about those kinds of books, um, they had a certain format to them. And, and, um, you know, one of the designers of that, uh, Quentin Fiore, um, designed a bunch of those and they were, uh, a, a lot of it was about sort of culture and technology and how things were progressing. Buckminster Fuller did a few books in these formats and they were a really interesting blend of, graphic design and sort of intelligent thinking, I would say, like it wasn't wall to wall text, there was imagery, there was graphic play. And so we were heavily influenced by those kinds of books. Um, and so with that, we sort of borrowed that format. Um, the binding is an exposed Smythe binding on the side. Love um, that. And, you know, designers love that for us. Um, you know, if anyone has ever visited Facebook, um, you, you recognize that the space is not finished and that's on purpose. That's to show that uh, you can walk in there and have an impact and also sort of stay humble and move quickly. And so we wanted the book to feel just like the space and like the ethos itself. And so that's why we have an exposed binding. Um, that's why the, the whole piece is printed on uncoated paper. So you can really sort of get that texture in there. There's nothing glossy about um, at the time about being there. Uh, and so we really needed to reflect that. And the cover, um, you know, and, and it's there's no hardcover to this. It's all just sort of uh, it's just a page. It's it's one one weight of paper throughout. Um, and the cover of it says Facebook was not originally created to be a company. 
Um, it was built to accomplish a social mission to make the world more open and connected. Their mission has now changed, and this book is no longer in print there, but um, it, that's to my point about like how it really encapsulated a certain moment. Um, and the book opens on, on, on those words and then sort of a timeline of what communication has gone through from the cave paintings in Lascaux uh, to the, um, uh, the tombs of the nobles in Egypt um, to the fall of the Berlin Wall. And then you get to the cell phone. And so it's a, a mini introduction on technology. And then really, hopefully one can sort of open this anywhere and, and really understand uh, a bit of the culture. Because at the time, the company was also scaling at such a rapid pace that like, how do you get people up to speed on, on what it means to work here? Mm-hmm. Um, and in general, it, it, it is a, you know, it's, it's a culture book. And Facebook was not the first and it won't be the last to produce some of these. Um, I remember when researching this Valve, um, their handbook came up, the Walt Disney um, animators handbook came up as other sort of great examples because they just encapsulate a certain ethos in that moment. Mm -hmm. And so with this piece, we really hope to sort of encapsulate that, but in a physical, uh, in a physical book. And it lasted, I like to joke that this was like one of the longest lasting projects there because (laughs) I think, I think it went through maybe 10 print runs. So they would give these to all the new hires um, and uh, maybe it was 10, maybe it was eight, but like, that's a long time for anything to last, especially in, in a large digital, um, company. Yes. Cause if you think about, you know, what your Instagram looked like, you know, a year ago, it probably looked like quite a bit different than it does now. Yes, um, it does. and the same thing with Facebook and all of the other apps. And so there's, I think there's something, um, you know, there's something special about that. And it's one of the things that I've also learned in talking to a lot of product designers uh, about print is that there's. Uh, for for some designers, it can be actually a little bit scary about how permanent it is um, and what that means. And I had actually never thought about that until sort of working in this in this space. Mm-hmm. Um, so with something like that, that's speaking to brand and culture and and is a gift to employees, essentially, because it's this sort of collector's piece that goes around. I, why? I mean, I don't know. Maybe why is not the right answer here, but maybe it is why why print instead of just emailing a pdf to every to the staff yeah that's a great question um one of the reasons was really so you would have like a a memento of the occasion but then it really grew into something that you know i think that there's something special about when you join a company what you're given and what your symbols are that you sort of hold dear and so for many people that were joining the company, they were getting this book and saying like, this is, th- this, this gives you just a taste of what the culture is and sort of what we expect of people. Yeah. And so to have something physical, you know, it's small enough that it could easily sit on your desk or sit in, you know, uh, something like a little cabinet file folder next to your desk. And so there's something about having something physical nearby that is always present, you know, like a person to remind you of something. Um, and so I think that's why, because we get plenty of digital communications and how many people are really excited about a PDF. Uh, (laughs) I'm sure there's some excitement, but it's, um, you know, there's, there's a different feeling to something physical in front of you. I was just about to say that, you know, it immediately, the importance level is raised because it's this tangible thing instead of an email because of the volume of emails that you get. And uh, the other way that I really like to describe 
that or sort of explain that analogy is you think of a number of designers all looking for a job and all of them are emailing their PDF portfolio to the same art director, except one of them who prints their work on this really nice paper or just a really nice packaging experience or unboxing experience and mails them something instead of just emailing them. It, it stands out. It becomes more important. It gets more attention. It just has this higher perceived value. Yeah, there's also there's something on the line. You've, you know, you can actually interact with the resources that were necessary for something to be made where mm-hmm. a lot of our world can feel very glassy and digital. And so there's plenty of resources that went into, you know, the things that are making our communication happen right now, but mm-hmm. it's so difficult to see yeah. um, and to really experience fully. And you really get that with something that is, is um, you know, more tangible and physical. So. Definitely. No, I couldn't agree more. That's the way to do it. And I guess the other thing that it could instill is commitment on behalf of the company. Because just it, it, they, they invested in this piece. It's an investment and a commitment to you, the employee. So by joining and being a part of that team, it sort of instantly builds that team and connection to a deeper level. Yeah, absolutely. Like anytime you're going to, um, you know, spend resources on something, you need to have a, you need to make sure it delivers. Um, hmm. You know, I might also argue though that like, uh, you know, you could be playing an event or you could be showing your appreciation for employees in some other manner and you're still going to have to commit resources. So it's, it's not, it's not only print that gets that, uh, that bonus. No, it's, it's only print. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to live in that world, Dave. I want to live <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome, man. That's um, that's a really cool piece. Can you do you mind holding that up to the camera just so I can have a quick, um, just a, a peek at something? Like, oh, I like There's how that's done. There's that's yeah. The lay lay flat, you know, because of that exposed mice. So that's yeah. always always a big fan of that. And yeah, you can really open it anywhere, and it gives you just a little tidbits. Um, it's so weird to have because I mean you know, Facebook means something very different today than it did a few years ago than it did when I started. And it's, mm-hmm. it also, the piece also means something very different to me in that sense as well. And I think that that's really, really rare with any kind of design project, whether it is print or otherwise to sort of have such a, um, a long view of the impact of a thing that was made and um, how it inserts itself into culture and how it inserts itself into a company and what that means for that company is uh, it's kind of wild. This holds a moment in time. Yep. Very cool. Print has the power to do that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Tim, any other projects up your sleeve there? I think I'll stop there. I feel like right. I feel like you might get me on a you might get me rolling, and then you, you'll never get off this. And then your wife is going to be like, yeah. "Where are you?" I'll be right there, hon. I'll just be right there. Tim's got another one. <laughs> awesome. Well, Tim, like I said before, this has been awesome chatting with you and connecting with you, um, seeing what you got cooking in the print world, and and hearing some of your stories and the, and the things that you've come across and your experience with um, print and design and how they just sort of merge together and create things. Thanks, Dave. Pleasure talking to you. 
Okay, you think we're done, but we're not quite done here. That was our recorded episode. That was when we connected, we chatted about it, shared some stories. And um, now I want to play the audio that Tim sent me about two projects. One of them being a note card that he created with his mom and the story behind it and the purpose behind it and it's straight from the heart, no doubt. So I wanna share that with you and I want you to hear that. The next is about a, a book that they created and the production side of this book and the amount of sort of specialty finishing and unique print tangible touches in this book is probably more than I've ever seen for sure. And Tim even said that it was likely more than like the most that he's ever seen part of a print project. We're talking foils, French fold pages, shorter, like different sized pages within the book, um, different stocks throughout the book. Like, holy cow, this, this thing's jam packed. So I'm going to play those two bits of audio here for you now and definitely go check out our Instagram to see the pictures of these things. So I really want to talk about a note card I made a few years ago. Uh, and I want to talk about it because it's something that I made with my mom. And I don't think uh, a lot of people make design projects with their family or their parents unless, you know, I don't know, they're in the business together or something like that. Um, but this is not really the case. Um, so the story of this card probably started... Uh, a few years back, uh, after I had edited the book, uh, The Reward is in the Process. That book is a collection of creative prompts for the design-minded or people that just feel like they might be in a rut and need a little bit, uh, a little bit of a nudge. It was influenced by Oblique Strategies um, and John Baldessari's uh, class assignments, optional. Um, and one of the prompts in there uh, is about making something with your parents. Um, and so now, now this book is, uh, I haven't done all of these prompts. They're more so things that I think that would produce an interesting journey for the person trying to partake in them. Um, but this is one of the examples of uh, one that I tried to do or, or did to. Um, and so at the time um, of trying to execute this, I um, had sort of put together a sentence when I was working in the analog research lab that, I don't know, just sort of encapsulated what I felt like we were doing there, but also what I think a lot of people, designers, um, craftspeople, um, do just in general. You know, um, you're making something with your hands, um, you scale it somehow, and scaling usually happens with the machine. But in the end, the piece or whatever is produced really comes from your heart. And hopefully the people that receive those things can really, really feel it. And so with that uh, sentiment in mind, um, you know, the phrase is, uh, this was made by hand, produced by machine, and sent from the heart. Um, I sent that off uh, to my mom um, because my mom uh, had great, great penmanship. So she went to school way back in the day in Chicago. Um, and, you know, uh, Catholic schools at the time were, were very much sticklers for penmanship. And my mom was also left-handed. And so they really, um, 
I, I don't know. I guess the nuns just really uh, preferred you to be right-handed, but my mom's left-handed, and so she got a, a lot of attention to make sure that her handwriting was great. And so in starting this, uh, or I really wanted to start this with my mom because, um, you know, she had, uh, at the time, she had been uh, diagnosed with lung cancer and was also sort of getting up there in age and also noticed that her handwriting was just, you know, getting a little, a little shaky. So, you know, time was a little bit of the essence. So I sent her the phrase uh, and had her sort of scan it and send them, send them back to me and it was a simple sort of cleanup job. And then I worked with James Tucker over at uh, Aesthetic Union uh, here in the Bay Area. And, um, you know, it's a pretty simple print job. It's just black ink, one side. Uh, we printed it on uh, Crane's Letra uh, just to have a really good tooth and really good softness to it. And, and that was really it. It's a really simple job, but I, I think what I love so much about it is, you know, making something with my mom. And while she's you know, not really here physically with us. It's something that lives on and it's a way for me to share something, a bit of myself, but also of my mom with people that um, might not be able to, to meet her or didn't get a chance to know her. Like I said, that one was straight from the heart. I love the story behind it. As soon as he sent me that audio, um, I just sat here with my headphones on listening to it. And man, you you, you feel sort of the the purpose behind creating that tangible thing and what a what a really cool thing um just to remember and to have um as a tangible object something you know more than just memories but something that goes beyond that as well so such a cool experience i'm glad he shared that with me um with us i should say so next is the audio for uh, the book that he was a part of creating for the Parker Institute and their um, cancer immunotherapy um, study and and work that they were doing. And the amount of finishing and unique experiences that went into this book is is just wild. So let's kick it over to Tim and I'll let him share that with us now. I can't believe I almost forgot to talk about this piece. So uh, this book is probably, uh, probably has the most amount of finishes uh, and bells and whistles I've ever sort of uh, had the pleasure of, of working with on, on a print project. Uh, so I was brought into this uh, by my friend Ben Barry. Um, this is for the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy. This was for their launch event uh, in LA quite a few years ago. And this document is I would call it like a, a vision, uh, a vision book for what the institute uh, wants to do, uh, what the possibilities of cancer immunotherapy are, and it really outlines that and uh, connects it to people's stories, uh, people who have received cancer immunotherapy and how that has changed their lives, as well as highlighting the different companies and institutions and schools that have worked together or continue to work uh, on fighting cancer um, with this way. So the cover of this, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, might be, might be seven different foils. Um, we really wanted to uh, make sure that the book had a, had a strong, strong impact in the onset. 
And this dot pattern is really the identity of the entire event, and it's woven throughout the book. So it's, it's both sort of happening on the cover, uh, really trying to reflect just the amazing possibility of what cancer immunotherapy can do and how it can really save lives. Um, and so that, is, uh, that was sort of our, our big push for the, for the front of this. And then woven throughout, all of the pages are French-folded. So um, the insides of those pages, when you sort of pucker them open, um, you'll see a gradient progression of this, uh, of this pattern that uh, I'm pretty sure been, uh, been designed with processing so that each one is, is, uh, is slightly different as you open pages, should you want to open them up. Um, but really to sort of get a sense of underlying all of us, right, if this is uh, if this is sort of our abstract representation of sort of cells and the inner workings of the body, it's, um, you know, it felt apt because that is literally what's happening inside of us and we're just not seeing it. Um, so that's running through the book. Um, in certain sections, we have uh, chapter breaks where we highlight uh, different key partners and so that you'll see uh, we've got we printed on a clear acetate and so when you literally turn the page and you then start to read uh, the different partners the universities and companies like that's sort of our our, our physical metaphor for um, literally like changing the way uh, we're dealing with um, uh, treating disease and cellular structure um, and then another fun component is that we did uh, quarter pages. So when you get to the section around uh, stories, both of people that uh, have been treated uh, by cancer immunotherapy, but also people working on it, we have sort of exposés in there. Um, we really wanted the imagery, the photography to, to sort of stand out and, um, and really sort of when people are reading the story, it's a little bit more intimate. So we made that section. The, those pages just a little bit smaller so you could sort of be um, you could really take in the photography completely um, and what other little fun tricks did we have in there um, uh, in certain components we uh, we went completely monotone um, to really sort of focus on um, uh, some of the more sort of foundational uh, topics within it and then the rest is uh, sort of standard full color, uh, yeah, four over four. Um, but yeah, hopefully the images sort of uh, give you a glimpse into it. It is really difficult to photograph because of the foils. And also it's, uh, you know, I, I think that oftentimes medical content, uh, people can say that it's really dry, but it, I think that I think that our approach to this hopefully really made it come alive. Um, yeah, that was a lot of fun. All right. That is officially the end of this episode of the print design podcast. Like I, I told you this was jam packed with really cool projects and I really enjoyed chatting with Tim. You could hear his, his passion behind creating these design experiences and what the, his excitement for the things that he's been able to be, a part of. So such a great conversation. So glad I could share that with you. Um, yeah, that's it for today's episode. 
And uh, if you're digging what you're hearing on the Print Design Podcast here, head over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify as well, or wherever you are listening to these things, and leave a rating and a review. Um, they, just, they just make us smile, you know, to help us smile. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.